So we've got a slightly unusual situation here where we've got kind of part two of a sermon where Peter has already begun addressing the crowd and explaining what had gone on in Acts chapter 2 verses 1 to 11 where the Holy Spirit came in power and in quite amazing ways. And now Peter's focus turns to Jesus and he gives a really clear explanation of what we often refer to as the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ. And of course, right at the centre of what he says is Jesus. And the response, verse 37 and verse 41, is nothing short of explosive. 3,000 people were cut to the heart, saying, what should we do? And they turned to this Jesus whom they had crucified because they suspected him of blasphemy. You see, the Holy Spirit was powerfully at work in those days as the church was born. The Holy Spirit, he used Peter's words and he works in the hearts and minds of those that were present. I'm sure there were some who were there that that actually didn't respond. Who just said, yeah, 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 whatever. Still think they were just drunk or just misbehaving. But 3,000 people did respond. And just while we're here at the beginning, it is just so wonderful to hear of that kind of mass turning to Jesus. What an incredible experience that would have been to be in a place where there was more than 3,000 people so that 3,000 of them could have turned to Jesus. And actually that still happens. We hear of great outpourings of the Holy Spirit where hundreds and thousands of people turn to Jesus at one time. But it's not kind of the norm. It's not what we see happen every day. But we mustn't therefore conclude it doesn't happen. Nor must we therefore conclude that actually when one single person turns to Jesus, that that's not a phenomenal miracle either. That that's not a phenomenal working of the Holy Spirit. Let's not underestimate the wonder of one person, one life, You and your life turning towards Jesus because the Holy Spirit is at work in you. Maybe that's already happened for you. Maybe that is yet to happen for you. But that is a wonderful, wonderful thing. Whether it's one or a thousand or a hundred thousand. What I wanted us to do this morning, just for a a few moments, is to look at what Peter says here. Because actually he sets out the gospel, the good news of Jesus, beautifully. And it seems that there are four key ingredients, if you like, to this explosive mix that is held together and brought to life by the work of the Holy Spirit. Four things Peter 
alludes to here that are ingredients of the gospel. First of all, there are the gospel events themselves. Secondly, there are the gospel witnesses. Thirdly, there are some conditions attached to the gospel. And fourthly, there are some gospel promises. And surprisingly enough, we'll have a look at all four in the next few minutes as we just think these things through. The first one, key ingredient, the gospel events. It's a key ingredient, just like a roast dinner without a piece of roast meat would be a little bit absent, although maybe a nut roast if you happen to be a vegetarian. But a roast is not a roast without the main thing. A hot chocolate is not a hot chocolate without the chocolate. It's got other stuff in it, but there is the main thing. And here we have the gospel events. Peter reminds his listeners of events actually that had only happened 50 days beforehand. When Peter was talking, it only happened 50 days before. But it's a great reminder for us too, 2,000 years on. A reminder that Jesus, verse 23, was handed over to die. Jesus, the one who'd gone around announcing the wonder of the kingdom of God, healing people, setting people free from sickness, from demon possession, raising Lazarus from the dead, doing all sorts of incredible things, turning water into wine. And he was led to die. But Peter makes something very clear. This was not a freak accident. This was not a mistake. The father was not sitting in heaven thinking, "Uh uh-oh, right, plan B, plan B, quick. This was God's design. Peter says it was by God's set purpose and foreknowledge. Verse 23. He didn't just know that this was going to happen in a kind of a seeing ahead of time sort of a way, but he planned it. Because God knew he had to take the initiative to deal with the broken relationships between himself and us, the humanity that he created. You see, ever since sin entered the world, had three effects. It alienated us from God, broke the relationship between us and God, and alienated us. Sin also binds us in our own self-interest, in our own selfish desires. And that, in turn, brings conflict in humanity between us. Our sin alienates us from God, binds us to our selfish desires, and brings conflict amongst ourselves. Our sin, which would lead to death and an eternity without the creator God, needed to be dealt with. And so Jesus came and he died. But of course the gospel events aren't just about Jesus dying. But verse 24, God raised Jesus from the dead. Peter picks this up again in verse 32 
where he says, not only did he raise this Jesus to life, we're all witnesses to that fact, but verse 33, he exalted him to the right hand of the Father. Just as we saw right at the very beginning of this book of Acts, Jesus ascended into heaven that his work might continue actively up there in heaven, a real place where he intercedes for us. And now he reigns in authority. These events, these gospel events, are absolutely vital. They are the main dish. But there's more that helps us to see and to know that this is for real. Which is exactly what Peter was trying to communicate to his audience. So we've got the gospel events, the roast lamb if you like. Now we've got some of the trimmings that are very important. First of those is the gospel witnesses. Now some of you were here last week when I talked about the, um, the opening ceremony of the 2012 Olympic Games. Credible spectacle that we said really only made sense if you knew something of British culture because it was so much of a celebration of British culture about that opening ceremony. And actually, if you didn't know British culture, you'd need some commentary to help you. But actually, that spectacle that arguably surpassed most people's expectations, we need to remember it didn't just happen. Kind of in a vacuum. It wasn't just kind of an event in time that just happened. Millions of people saw it happen. 80-odd thousand people sat in a stadium and were dazzled by it. I think somewhere around a billion television viewers watched it. They saw it happen. And not only that, but all those people didn't just turn up and hope for the best. But it had been planned meticulously, I think over years, What's his name? Danny Boyle. Danny Boyle was commissioned and and his brain must have been whirring and probably a good deal of adrenaline flowing as he was thinking, oh my goodness, I've got to beat what the Chinese put on. And then he planned it. And then he started speaking to people and drawing people in and saying, this is what I want you to do. This is what I want you to do. The gospel events, actually, on a much bigger scale, Because they span history and span time and meet the gap between heaven and earth. But actually they were planned for. And not just that, they were witnessed. Okay, there wasn't a global TV audience, but they were witnessed nonetheless. And so there are two things that bear witness to the gospel events. Both the fact that they were planned for and the fact that they were seen. Let's look first of all at they were planned for. Something like a thousand years before Jesus died on the cross, King David ruled in Israel. King David, a man who had a heart for God. King David, a man 
that God chose to speak through. King David, as he wrote his psalms, heard God say and heard God's heart speak of a time that would come when someone in his descendancy, his lineage, would be the Messiah, the Saviour. And so Peter here quotes from Psalm Psalm chapter 16. And he speaks of an encounter with God in verses 25 to 28. And an assurance of a hope yet to come. King David, who for those people that first heard, he was kind of like part of the fabric of society. He was as real as Winston Churchill or Henry VIII. And here Peter is saying, King David knew about this. King David wrote about this. And Peter's kind of saying, look, as sure as David's tomb is in this city, so his words are being fulfilled in our time. So you see verse 27, where King David said, you will not abandon me to the grave, nor will you let your Holy One see decay. So Peter picks up on that in verse 31 and said of David, seeing what was ahead, he spoke of the resurrection of the Christ, that he was not abandoned to the grave, nor did his body see decay. Peter was saying, please people, get a hold of this. Because we knew it was going to happen. And it's happened. And then he goes on, Peter, and quotes from Psalm 110. A psalm that actually Jesus uses. And is quoted in Matthew, Mark and Luke's Gospel. As Jesus points to his identity as the Messiah, as the Chosen One, as the Christ, the one who was coming to save his people. And we see in that slightly curious little phrase, it's it's quite difficult to understand in some senses, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. Basically identifies Jesus with Yahweh, the God of Israel, one and the same, and saying that I will sit on authority, in authority, sorry, And then that strange phrase, I'll make enemies a footstool for your feet. Well, that was just a a way of speaking that people would have understood. That's about authority. That's about somebody who is king and lord over all. So Peter refers to what was planned. The witness of the Old Testament, the first half of our Bible. And actually Jesus pops up time and time and time and time again in the Old Testament. And Peter just picks out some of those things. By the power of the Spirit, helps him to see and helps him to speak out that here Jesus fulfilled what was spoken in the Old Testament. But it wasn't just in the planning that we have a witness or witnesses. 
but it was also that people saw it with their own eyes. We couldn't in any way, shape or form deny that the opening ceremony of the 2012 Olympics happened. Because most of us probably watched it or heard about it or read about it knowing that it happened. Maybe somebody went. Did anyone go? Didn't ask that last week. Anyone get the chance to go to the opening ceremony? We would have been very jealous. <laughs> Even though we're not allowed to do that. But anyway, it happened. And Peter is saying, as sure as David spoke those words, so it happened. And of course then Peter refers to the fact, verse 32, that we are witnesses, eyewitnesses, to what happened. So we have in this little bit of, of Peter's sermon, the gospel event, we also have witnesses to the gospel. And of course, actually, it doesn't end 2,000 years ago because we still have witness of the power of the gospel today. In lives that are challenged and changed by the gospel. I was speaking to a dear friend yesterday, Lorna, and I were chatting yesterday. And we're talking about a situation where actually foul language is having a really, really oppressive effect on a situation that, that we're both involved in. And she just said completely innocently, and I had to ask permission for her to, to, to mention this, but she said, I used to speak like that. I used to swear until I met Jesus. Until Jesus turned my life around. And I didn't, didn't need to swear anymore. He changed the way my mind was thinking and, and what I said. And in a sense, I don't want to belittle this, but it's a small thing in, in many ways. And yet, a hugely significant thing. I don't think I'd ever really appreciated until I thought about this conversation we had. How damaging kind of foul and abusive language can be. And how much impact that can have on other people. And how beautifully transformational that is. That Jesus met Lorna and changed her. And so we have witnessed to this day that Jesus changes people. So we've got the events, we've got the witnesses. Third thing that we see in this passage is that there are some conditions to the gospel. See, Peter makes it clear, this stuff affects you and me. Verse 22 and verse 23, look. Listen to this, Peter says. Jesus of Nazareth was a man accredited by God to you by miracles, wonders and signs, which God did among you, he's saying to the people as you yourselves know. This man was handed over to you with the help of wicked men and put him to death by nailing him on the cross. Peter involves his listeners. Peter says, this is about you guys. You were intimately involved in this. God did this stuff among you and you were party to killing him. And actually, we're drawn into that. 
We are drawn in to that same address. Because actually our sin, my sin, put Jesus on the cross. That's why we sang just now, thank you for the cross. Thank you for the cross. Thank you for the cross, my friend. Because actually, my actions, my stubbornness, my desire to do things my way, put Jesus on the cross. And so there are some conditions to the gospel. There's a need for a response, in other words. It can't just be a nice story. For it actually to have an impact, we need to do something with it. And I guess there are two things in that, those conditions. There's faith and there's repentance. There's faith that Jesus is God as he's witnessed here. Faith that he died for me. Faith that he loves me so much that he came to die for me and die for you, each and every one of you. And then there's repentance. Funny kind of religious word, repentance. Basically means, the Greek word is metanoia, means turn around. It's a reorientation of your life. It's a great definition that I heard somewhere, we used it at Messy Church a while ago, of, of sin being S, shove off God, I, I'm in charge, N, not you. Shove off God, I'm in charge, not you. That's sin. That's me saying I'm in the driving seat, I know best, I can do it my way, me, my family, my friends, we don't need you. Repentance says I turn away from that. I actually recognise my need for you, God. And I am sorry that I do that shove-off God bit. I need you to forgive me. I need you to take my sin upon your shoulders. See, only Jesus can help me to be the man that I have been created to be as he deals with my sin and helps me. And it's the same for you. Only Jesus can shape us. We often kid ourselves, don't we? That we can pick and choose the bits of Christianity that are kind of comfortable and and, and easy to digest. And then we kind of say, well, actually, the rest, we've just got to move with the times. You know, the church has got to catch up. Because that's just, you know, that's the way it is. But actually, the Bible teaches us so much about what God's best for us is. Not because God's a spoil sport, but because God made us. He created us. And actually, he wants us to live life in all its fullness. And when we turn our back and say, shove off God, I'm in charge, not you, we actually miss the opportunity to live life in all its fullness. Don't mean to say that it's going to be easy. Don't mean to say that suddenly we turn to Jesus and everything is happy, clappy and super duper and the sun always shines and the roses come out on the garden and all of that kind of stuff. 
But it does mean that as we walk through the really cruddy days, we walk with Jesus. Now, in some senses, that may mean that we sit, swim against the tide. But actually, we need to do that because that's what God calls us to do. Verse 40, Peter makes that very clear as a part of that response. He says, he pleads with them, save yourselves from this corrupt generation. Actually, the translation is is a little bit unhelpful because that suggests that we can do something to save ourselves. The way it's written in Greek is saying, be saved. Be saved by what Jesus has done for you. But we need to respond to that. And so I get why the NIV translators have translated it like that. You've got to do something about it. Don't just let it wash over your head. You need to respond in repentance and faith. So we've seen the gospel events that Peter's talked about. We've seen the witnesses both in the Old Testament and those who saw with their very eyes. We've seen that there needs to be repentance and faith. Fourth thing, there are promises attached to the gospel and they are good. You see, as we turn to Jesus, we will be forgiven. Verse 21, we didn't read it just now, we read it last week. Everyone who calls on the name of the Lord Jesus will be saved. Verse 38, Peter replies, repent and be baptized every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. That promise is for you for your children, for all who will come. Not that that my faith can save my children, but that promise is available for Ellie and Hannah and Kate. That promise is available for their children and their husbands should they choose to get married and have kids. And that was revolutionary in those days. Because actually, for the Jewish nation... There was a very firm idea that God was the Jewish God and nobody else's God. And so bit by bit here we are seeing the opening up of what Jesus did for the whole world, for those who will turn to him. Forgiveness. That's massive. Just think about it. That is just enormous. Think of a time when you've been wronged. That might be quite hard. How hard was it to forgive? Or maybe how hard does it continue to be, actually, to forgive? See, forgiveness isn't a really easy thing. It's a massive thing. Have you known someone's forgiveness when you've really messed up? And they've said to you, come on back. I forgive you. Let's walk together again. Let's do this thing together again. 
when we turn to Jesus in repentance and faith, the creator of the world forgives you for all that is past. Don't have to earn it. Don't have to be an extra good person. Don't have to, to, to help a few people across the road. We don't have to, to kind of don't go and clean our neighbor's windows. We don't have to do all those things that might be nice things to do to earn God's forgiveness. We turn to him and ask his forgiveness. And we are forgiven. But there's more than just forgiveness that's promised. See, Jesus wants us to become more and more like him. That's part of that condition thing with the gospel, that it's not just a nice story that kind of say, yeah, 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 I do that on Sunday. That's a good thing on a Sunday. That's, that's very noble. Jesus wants us to become more like him. But actually, that kind of feels impossible to me. Don't about you. I don't think I can be like Jesus. William Temple, former Archbishop of Canterbury. He said it's a bit like watching a Shakespeare play, say Hamlet. Enjoying the play and thinking, oh, that was just amazing. And then being asked to write a play just like it. I couldn't do that. Apart from anything else, I don't know Shakespeare in English. But I don't know that. I don't have the genius of Shakespeare within me. It'd be like me going to an art gallery and looking at a Monet and thinking, wow, that's so cool. I couldn't paint that because I don't have it within me to be able to paint like that. I know some of you probably do, but I don't. Becoming like Jesus is just like that. I didn't hear any crashes, so it's okay as, as the tractor goes by. But actually, it's like, G, like that with Jesus. We could watch Jesus and look at what he did and feel really, completely, just inadequate. But there's a second promise as we come to Jesus. Verse 38. You will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. He will come and fill us. He will help us to live more and more like him. It don't happen overnight. Because our humanity still kind of rages with, 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 with that which God has put within us. Actually, it seems like often we get filled with the Holy Spirit as we come to him. But we're like leaky buckets and it soon sort of just dribbles away. And our humanity kind of just takes over again. We need to be constantly filled with the Holy Spirit that he would help us to become more and more like him. Peter seems to capture everything he's saying in verse 36. Let all Israel be assured of this. He's making a bold statement here. God has made this Jesus, whom you crucified, both Lord and Christ. He is God. He came to save. Perhaps you need to hold fast to that yourself today. Perhaps you need to just 
re-cling to the fact that Jesus loves you and came to save you. And he promises to fill you with his Holy Spirit to help you to deal with the things that you wrestle with. Perhaps you need to hear it for the first time. Perhaps you need to see that actually Jesus is more than just a good man. But he's the son of God who died for you. If that's striking a chord with you today, then verse 38 might resonate even more as Peter replies to the question, what shall we do? Repent and be baptised, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins. Baptism, you see, is an outward expression of saying, yeah, I want to be a follower of Jesus. I want my life to be completely washed clean through what he did on the cross. And I want to be a follower of Jesus. If that's a place where you come to today, we would so love to follow that up with baptism. You might have noticed the bouncy floor as we go through here. There's a baptistry under there and we would love to baptise you. We can talk about that. We can think that through. We can pray that through together. And we can arrange that. But maybe for you today, it is just about seeing the gospel again and seeing just how massive the gospel is. How amazing the gospel is. Not just the events but the witnesses that give it certainty. The conditions that we have to respond to the gospel and the promises that are there. 